Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Robbie Martin. This is Abby Martin. How's everybody doing out there? We just, uh, we did that Rittenhouse episode, which I think was cathartic for people to listen to, even though, you know, we still get met with that point that people think it's a waste of time, it's a distraction away from other things. And I understand the, I understand the general concept of it being like, Maybe this got too much coverage. Maybe maybe we are focusing on it too much because it's in the media. I think those criticisms are fair. I totally get them. On the other hand, I am seeing some strange talking points that I feel like I need to just mention really quickly right off the bat. That the reason the Kyle Rittenhouse trial was being boosted was because it was meant to bury the Ghislaine Maxwell trial. And in addition to that, that the Ghislaine Maxwell trial was being uh, erased from the news. Now, just from my own perspective, I didn't see, neither of those paradigms seemed true to me. There's a shitload of coverage of the Ghislaine Maxwell trial all over the news, in fact. But then I started seeing this weird rabbit hole of like Twitter conspiracy light people sort of arguing, well, why is Rittenhouse's picture all over? There's so many pictures of Rittenhouse in court and it's so mysterious. We haven't seen a picture of Ghislaine Maxwell. At a certain point, I, I really do think people just really just want to believe what they want to believe. It doesn't, yeah, it, right. it really doesn't matter what the facts are. It doesn't matter if Ghislaine Maxwell thing has like a thousand results in Google news right now. People are just going to fucking believe what they want to believe because right. it's fun. Well, first of all, the trial starts tomorrow. The actual trial starts tomorrow. Oh, that too. Tomorrow. Yeah. You know, I mean, so. <laughs> Holy shit, dude, wait. I mean, I don't know if there's just pre-trial hearings or whatever, but it is funny because, yeah, the federal court thing, that's why you have, um, you know, pictures drawn of it instead of the actual images. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I've already seen a ton of coverage about it just in search results. I, like I said before, I haven't been watching, like, TV, so I haven't seen anyone discuss it in terms of like clips and stuff of like mainstream anchors, but who knows if that's going to change. I mean, again, like this implicates people like Bill Clinton and they don't really want to talk about that shit. So I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't discussed a lot. If like the, you know, like the lib media wasn't discussing it a lot, but I think it is going to get covered quite extensively because it is a huge deal. I think one of the biggest problems right now with the discourse and the toxification of it is like just the confirmation bias that people just seek out to prove no matter what what their point is it's like they don't want any information that's coming in to penetrate their already affirmed confirmation bias that they already have established and that's a really big problem and like the algorithm just reinforces that more and more and you just see it with the Kyle Rittenhouse thing you see it with this horrific story of that Waukesha parade massacre where that guy like plowed into this like Christmas parade and killed all these elderly people and like a young child um and his shit's all over the place I mean it's like all these weird 
scrawlings of like a mentally ill person. And I'm not trying to excuse his actions by saying he's mentally ill. Um, I'm just saying it's like a little bit hard to pinpoint like a political motivation. Oh, you mean to say you know? that he's like that, that basically they're trying to spin it saying it was a Black Lives Matter revenge killing for like the Rittenhouse trial. That's, exactly. That's and because he had some bizarre incoherent memes that he posted years ago saying like white people something about like how white people need to die or something. I'm paraphrasing some of these incoherent like rantings on Facebook or whatever. But it's not as like people are all comparing it like Andy No, Jack Posobiec. I sometimes look at their Twitter feeds just to see how divisive this reality really is. It's basically just like, why isn't the media covering this as like a Black Lives Matter thing? Like, like, and, like, what's the difference? And like showing just the pictures juxtaposed of Kyle Rittenhouse and this guy being like, like quoting newspapers being like the most threatening entity is like the 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 white disgruntled man in America and it's like oh really like what about this black guy who rammed through this parade and it's like to me yeah it's horrific and obviously we should talk about how disturbing it is that this guy did this but to me like we are in a nation of mass shootings and a lot of them are like almost meaningless almost one of these it's like yeah he didn't use an AR or an AK47 or whatever but like he used his vehicle to do like a total like massacre, but it's like the Rittenhouse thing stands alone as a, a really important case for other reasons. Absolutely. To me. And that's, I, I mean, it's like such a, it was such a fucked up, I mean, obviously anyone who would do something like that, it's like a monstrous thing to do. It, it doesn't even matter if it was premeditated. I mean, if it's premeditated, it's even worse if he like planned to you know drive into a parade. But mm-hmm. I don't even know what the full story is. But yeah, the way they're trying to spin it and they're exploiting this thing again where it's like the media classically, even since we were kids, Abby, usually doesn't mention like the race of the su- – like if, if like there's like a black yeah. suspect, they won't say it in the paper. So – for some reason now that's become this new thing where it's like, look, there's a conspiracy where they're trying to make it seem like uh, it was a white guy who did this. Or it, it's it's just fascinating the way that their that their spin has evolved, where they they can glom onto all these things that we know they've already existed, and maybe there are some politically correct or mm-hmm. specific reasons why they've existed. But again, they like find this little opening and they tear a giant hole. And I even saw people I respect acting as if there was a conspiracy to like hide this massacre right right like why aren't they talking about this like why why is the media covering up the wakasha massacre it's like i i don't think that they are i think that you really can't compare this to the vehicular car attacks during black lives matter demonstrations or like the charlottesville or where the guy intentionally and quite explicitly so rammed his car to kill like anti-fascist demonstrators or Black Lives Matter demonstrators. Like that, that is a little bit more clear cut than this. This is like one of many incidents that happens in America that is totally inexplicable. And maybe we'll know more as the guy maybe speaks out on trial. Um, but right now it's not like as cut and dry. And it's just so sad to see these cookie cutter nonsense talking points coming up from the right wing media machine trying to basically prove a point that just doesn't exist. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, like when the Kyle Rittenhouse thing first happened, I will just honestly say, like, it was not super clear cut for me at the very beginning. I didn't see all the video clips. I didn't know the full context of everything. I maybe even just saw the final clip, you know. And I, 
and I'm not saying I, I took Rittenhouse's side, it just wasn't as clear cut to me. It took some time for me to understand exactly, you know, how I felt about it after seeing more stuff. So I just think, again, it's just, you always have to be, I don't know, wary of people who are just so clear cut out of the gates in the, in the, within a void where there is no evidence or where there is a lack of evidence, they jump in and sound very conclusive. The cops aren't saying this about that parade, uh, you know, thing. So that must mean they're covering it up or that, you know, X, Y, and Z happen. But yeah, it's like the outrage machine that you talk about. It's like the, the constant cycle of like the lib media, like isn't doing this or is doing this. And so like, and then it's just the right wing reaction to that. And that's like pretty much all these people have to go on. It is. And I think that their strongest thing, honestly, that they should have stayed on was the like the COVID related stuff, because on some level, I do think that was maybe their strongest wedge. It's it's a way it's a wedge to also get people who aren't right wing sort of sympathetic right. and, and, and against the libs. I mean, so it's it's surprising to me that they've sort of gone into this cesspool of Rittenhouse and, and done this stuff recently and really amping up like this sort of civil war rhetoric. Like that clip you sent me of Tim Pool screaming, Abby. That was like, nuts. But too many people keep saying, as long as I keep filleting the state and dropping on my knees for the far left extremists, I will squeak by and you will not. The police will come to your home. They will kick your door in and they will arrest you because the good cops have already started quitting. And like we saw in Seattle, the police arrested the man who was retreating from Antifa as Antifa approached him with clubs in hand. And you think sitting back and complying will result in you getting by. You are wrong. Basically what he was at saying, if I could paraphrase him, is that like they're coming for us. Like right. they're coming for us. But who? The police? Well... It's sort of like a classic uh, variation of the old school Alex Jones trope of like, they're going to come and get us and like round us up into camps, like FEMA camps, yeah. like the government. Except now this is almost sort of like they flipped it upside down where it's like Tim Pool's almost acting like the BLM movement and Antifa and the radical left are going to come for us. And they're sort of somehow in leagues with the deep state and the strong arm of the government too. So it's like not only will they cancel culture us or like cancel us online and make us lose our jobs, but they'll also like come to our houses and potentially kill us. So this is fucking war, dude. I mean, that's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like yeah. what Scott, uh, what's his face? The fucking Dilbert guy was saying like right before yeah. Biden won when he said when Biden wins, they're going to be hunting Republicans. It's so it's just so disturbing how easy it, it is. is to like grift down this rabbit hole and then like have just tens of thousands of people just blindly in a hive mind fashion, just, just believe everything you say, repeat everything that you say and prop up these talking points. And they are so far fucking detached from any sort of reality that I see. It's just astounding to me to hear Tim pool rant and rave about how BLM is going to use the police as an instrument, which are like flies in the face of everything that we actually saw unfold. And he basically uses like Chaz as an example, that autonomous zone that happened in Seattle, I guess, where someone did get killed. And it's like, like they just love talking about that because somehow that validates and legitimizes their argument that BL, that the cops are actually afraid of BLM and they don't want to interfere with the rioting 
and the takeover of like local governments from BLM and Antifa people. It's like, who are you fucking talking? We have one socialist city councilwoman and Amazon has spent like tens of millions of dollars trying to unseat her. We have one woman here in LA who was like a DSA member, Nithya Raman, and she just got like redistricted. <laughs> what police are acting on behalf of like Antifa and BLM? It's just, it's so strange because of that woke rhetoric that they throw out there sometimes. And I know that we like constantly talk about this, but it is so cathartic to actually try to like understand this mentality because it's so pervasive. It's so pervasive. It creates an entire pipeline of this like post-leftism. You know, there's just a whole group of people who identify left, you know, either even on the anti-imperialist left, which I still think is an increasing and growing problem. And even on the post left, whatever you want to call that world, it's, it's, they're so anti-liberals and sort of generic liberalism and a lot of the liberal talking points that it's not just that they'll actually sometimes even adopt right-wing positions, like especially the post-left will. They'll actually repeat and just regurgitate like straight up, like, uh, you know, anything from right media that seems to be just bashing the libs. Any story, any tweet. And it's just at a certain point, it's like, don't you guys want to like carve out your own path? And I think it's just, it really is a problem with the media landscape and how people just really, really need something to guide them, help them figure out how to think. And I think that as long as that's, that need or desire is around, uh, it's going to continue to be a problem. And, you know, and I don't think this is just born out of mainstream media and the reaction to it. It's like, this is specifically someone's basically figured out how to like weaponize and capture the whole alternative media circuit to like make it more like the MSM, basically. And by that, I mean mm -hmm. more sensationalist, more reptile brain, more clickbait, more crap. That's the part of the problem I think that we're up against. Like the actual uh, doing real legwork, old school shoe leather journalism, on the ground reporting, people doing an investigative journalism. I mean, someone like Robert Perry or Daniel Hopsicker or these like lone wolf, you know, type of like really indie investigative reporters, that's almost like a gaunt. Like those, those type of people aren't even, don't even exist anymore. And it's, and I think partly another problem is it's because there's now a very specific framework of how to make money doing this kind of work. And it's inherently going to create an, a mirror image of that more mainstream corporate bought off version. But what's sad is like it's actually doing it without having to be like controlled by major corporations. It's just like people wanting to chase that dollar. And it's like almost like a gold rush. It's like people want, you know, they just can't help themselves. They want it. Um so anyways, it's I know we talk about this all the time and we're still trying to figure out new ways to talk about it and so we're not just venting about how frustrating it is, but Well, let's touch upon something else that we talk about a lot, but it's hard not to is Tulsi Gabbard really quickly and dovetailing off of the Ahmed Aubrey verdict. When we were talking about the Rittenhouse stuff and you were talking about how just straightforward of a of a case of lynching this was the Ahmed Arbery thing way more even than George Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin and how you know it was kind of like up in the air like oh my god what is going to happen here like are they going to find the, these guys guilty these three guys and they did unequivocally guilty all counts and it was a really amazing thing to see because 
it's very important, you know, especially in the Deep South, an almost or all white jury. I'm not sure if there were any black people on the jury, but like, and it was an important case and important to kind of set a precedent that you cannot lynch black people <laughs> in 2021. You know, who would have thought? Who would have thought that this is what we needed after the Zimmerman shit uh, was excused for so long? But Tulsi had something curious to say about it, Robbie. Um, and, you know, going going to her whole like right wing tilt and embrace of just like these bizarre Dave Rubin esque I mean, probably even more off the rails than Dave Rubin, to be honest. But like she had something to say about the Ahmed Arbery thing that I thought was really interesting. So on November 24th, Tulsi tweeted, quote, if America is a racist country, Arbery's killers would not have been found guilty by a nearly all white jury in Georgia. Most Americans of all colors believe in Dr. MLK's adage that as God's children, we should be judged by the content of our character, not the color of our skin. Um, so one quick thing is that Bernice King, who is the the daughter, I guess, of MLK, Bernice King, um, basically just said it's unfortunate that people persist in using my father to push this false and false peace narrative that this nation is somehow beyond racism. As a reminder, here is a video of how police treated Travis McMichael right after he murdered Ahmed. It's basically just the police totally appeasing, like totally acquiescing him, being like, dude, just do what you got to do. Like, I can only imagine like, yo, you want us to call anyone for you? Like, um, like it's so fucking crazy. I mean, these guys murdered this guy and the police are just like, yo, like, we're really sorry that this happened. Like, is there anything that we can do for you? And then apparently the DA, George Barnhill, immediately concluded Arbery was a criminal and he attacked the men who were hunting him. And that's why no charges were initially filed. You can read this letter that Barnhill sent to the Brunswick authorities and it's pretty surreal shit. So it's like, like, let's not pretend like this is somehow emblematic of how we're living in a post-racial society. It's just so strange. I can't tell if she's like actually seriously believes this shit or what? It's hard to tell what she is anymore. What could she possibly be doing strategically with these videos? Not the surfing one or whatever, but like these statements, these overly scripted. Obviously, she's done like five, six takes before she released one of them, you know, scripted. They make, they're made to look like they're impromptu TikTok videos or whatever. I don't get it because like that scene on Tucker where she literally like didn't take his layup and like actually like disagreed with him trying to talk shit about uh, Biden's drone strike. That to me marks that she might actually be like going off on her own thing. And maybe she's kind of like more just wild card, like ego driven dr steering this now. Maybe before she was more of a tool of some kind of right-wing faction or group. But now, I don't know what she is right now. But what do you think about this cookie-cutter shit that she said about the Arbery thing? I mean, I guess part of what I think of it is, like, first of all, it's obviously, like, total right-wing bait, like, acting like we're not, ra like, America has never been racist, we're not racist, like, slavery was not a big deal. It's, like, sort of, like, trying to, <laughs> it's going down that ramp, like, on purpose, um, but I could see how someone who's just sort of dumb could read that as, no, she's saying like, we're all God's children. Like, what are you like a fucking, like, why are you always trying to racialize things? Like she's trying not to divide people. You're the one trying to divide people. That's another thing that she's trying to do with that. 
There is this weird knee-jerk mentality where people who are so overly sensitive to discussions about racism Mm -hmm. that they actually will say like that any discussion about racism is so divisive that we shouldn't talk about it. So yeah, we've been wanting to talk about the documentary film that you're working on right now called Earth's Greatest Enemy. You've been going around the world traveling for this documentary and this is sort of different from... Uh, when you made Gaza Fights for Freedom, where a lot of the footage in that film was actually filmed by Palestinian videographers and people you were working with remotely. This documentary you're doing now is very different in the sense that you are actually in the documentary. I mean, you're going to be in it in various forms, and we'll talk about one of those ways that you're going to appear in it, obviously. Uh, But, I mean, I guess start by telling people like, what is the movie? I mean, I know you've already explained the general premise of it on here. And how did you and Mike and how did like how involved was he in the original inception of this with you? And, and how did you guys come across this concept and decide this is going to be your next focus? Because it's not even something that I would say that you've heavily covered on Empire Files before. What was it about this that really attracted you to this subject? So I feel like as long as I've been politically aware, I've always been very conscious about environmentalism and passionate about reducing plastic, you know, using recyclable bags, like just being really conscious of pollution and waste and garbage that is unnecessarily dumped all over this pristine, beautiful planet that we live in. You know, more facts are coming out, especially over the last couple decades of just like how we're in the middle of the sixth mass extinction. But this time we it is human caused and it's happening at such a rapid pace that it's like, you know, what what caused the last great extinction was like over the course of several thousand years. It's happening in like 100 years now. And it's all due to human led efforts. Um, You know, when we were growing up, I remember things like the ozone the hole in the ozone layer like the spraying of ddt and these chemicals from places like monsanto and shit that was like a huge part of my consciousness growing up and like the precedent was set that we actually did something about it and climate change seen inconvenient truth back when it came out when i was in college with mom and grandma even though it was <laughs> made by al gore i mean it was pretty indisputable the facts that were laid out about how this is an exponential growth of, uh, you know, human emissions of carbon that is going to cataclysmically change the environment that we live in. Um, but back then, it almost seemed like it was so far off. And, oh, yeah, we're going to do something about this. If the science is already – if there's already this consensus of the science, then really all that needs to be done is this political action that's taken in response. Um, but as my knowledge accumulated of, like, just the deep-seated corruption – of the government. When that evolved into understanding that capitalism and by proxy just our consumerist nature of humanity is so tied up and fundamental to the system that we live in, it became very hard to separate the two and actually think of, you know, think optimistically about like, oh, they're going to act on the science. Oh, things are actually going to change, you know? And the status quo has been upheld for the last 30 years as the predictions become more and more dire. 
you know, it was so politicized by the right wing, too, where it was like these these scientists are alarmists. They're putting out these ridiculous predictions and none of them ever came true. And I dabbled a little bit into like the anti-climate change arguments because I wanted to look at like what they were, like the great global warming swindle and all of that shit. And what you saw is that basically because the elite exploits a very real crisis, which is climate change, this is an indisputable fact that the climate change is human caused right now, um, because the rapidity of warming is unlike anything in geologic history. And that's very, very easy to prove. But because it's exploited and because there's like market initiatives and solutions to it, it's easy for people in the right wing and also other people, even in left wing circles to say like, this is, this is being taken out of context. It's being exaggerated or it just totally doesn't exist. And this is a problem that's completely invented so that they can do this carbon trading or whatever, like so that the, the elites can make more money off of this fake crisis without really looking at like how, no, this is a very real thing. But yeah, in the capitalist system that we live in, obviously they're going to just find ways to exploit the crisis and not really solve it, not really get to the the depths and roots of how did this happen and how can we actually um, stop it. And the more I became passionate about like foreign policy and let's just say an issue of Palestine, which is very dear to my heart, you almost have to look at everything through the, through the lens of the earth and the environment and and what are these terrains going to look like? What is this land going to look like in 20, 30 years? And as time went on, um, you know, even in my backyard, the fires, uh, the poisonous air that made me a uh, prisoner to my own home for several months out of the year, like you have more time to reflect on the urgency of the matter. It's not so much of a distant philosophical thought. Like, oh, in the, in the future, climate's going to change and like people who live in Bangladesh are going to be like displaced. No, it's like something that is happening so rapidly and it's happening in such a widespread fashion that it's impossible to actually not experience it no matter where you are on the planet. So knowing that this is something that is so pressing and so urgent and I felt like there was a huge gap in an in anti-imperialist coverage in terms of like mainstreaming the idea that the U.S. military is such a huge contributor to environmental collapse and just worldwide pollution. And so I guess Mike and I, for a long time now, I would say for at least a couple of years, we've been looking at how the consciousness has been spreading a little bit about how the U.S. military is the, the biggest polluter on the planet and just all the toxins and carcinogens and like the intentional dumping and poisoning of, of populations and, and land. Um, based on the reporting that we've done for Empire Files, it just kind of made sense as climate change is becoming more of an issue. Looking at every issue through the lens of U.S. empire, like we have through our series of the Empire Files, and and also being deeply, profoundly impacted by the environmental changes that are happening around us and the effects of consumerism on the planet, and and tying those two issues together of of realizing how much of a contributor the U.S. military, U.S. imperialism, and the U.S. empire at large is on this very fragile ecosystem that we live in. And when you look at actually the climate emissions, uh, this is something that I hadn't looked at until relatively recently, um, because at first our idea was just doing a documentary just on the environmental 
you know, the collapse that the U.S. military causes. But when I really looked at the climate emissions in general, I was pretty shocked to learn that they weren't calculated. They're not counted in any of these climate treaties and haven't been since the Kyoto Accords in 1997. And climate change is such a pressing issue that it's like you can't actually even focus on anything else going on in the environment if we're not going to deal with this first. And so once I I realized that, um, it just seemed like a no-brainer to kind of plant our flag and say we want to have this really big intervention in the environmental movement. Because as we're talking about like woke washing and, you know, this this identity politics stuff that the elite have have captured and are exploiting, um, they also have done the same with greenwashing. And you see this time and again where oil companies have basically just put green advertising or marketing and saying, okay, now we're the solution to the environmental problems that we face. Uh, World Wildlife Fund, Greenpeace, all of these other organizations that that talk about huge environmental problems and special collapses do not make the connection of how the U.S. military is contributing directly to this. And so we felt like it was it was just time. I mean, no one else had really done it. I've read a couple good articles about it. There was a book written in 2009 by Barry Sanders called The Green Zone that really um, laid out a thesis for this argument. But no literature has really been written since no one's really like done a comprehensive study about how this is all intertwined. And so I just thought, look, like there's no better time than now, especially because I feel like every issue needs to be looked at through this. Um, and it is such, such an urgent thing that if we don't actually take action in the next five to 10 years, we are looking at um, a very devastating dystopian future that could have been completely avoidable. And um, and that's where it all came from. So that's why we put out the teaser specifically about the climate change thing. Um, but but the actual documentary is going to be spread much more thoroughly uh, and expanded beyond just climate emissions. And and you know it's going to be uncovering a lot of disturbing things everywhere from just the general toxins and pollution that the U.S. military does and the lack of accountability. Uh, to human health and the environment. So yeah, you had a lot, you've had quite a lot to say there. So I wasn't really fully aware of this issue um, until you started talking to me about it. So obviously this is not being covered nearly to the extent that it needs to be. I was under the impression that pollution uh, was the main thing that the U.S. military was causing around the world and that they were like exposing their own personnel to you know toxic chemicals all the time and then that was like the main impact to the environment but this whole other aspect of it is it just totally buried um obviously on purpose so i guess how do you think why do you think or like have you even seen um you know people who are talking about the this just the CO2 emissions, like mentioning this, like who is already on this specifically and has it, a, has it ever been like a mainstream topic at any time? Like did this, cause I, I've not heard about this. Well, that's, what's so weird about it, Robbie. There was more of a consciousness, like when, like during earth day and like in the early two thousands and maybe late nineties, it was like more talked about. And, and I, and I honestly, and this could be just totally like, 
off the rails here, but I really think that 9-11 like re-propagandized a lot of academia and just the, the media um, to basically just be complacent and acquiescent to like U.S. empire and U.S. imperialism. And I think the war on terror really cemented like that uh, ideation of, of U.S. propaganda and American exceptionalism in a really destructive way because it, it created a huge lack of real reporting on the devastating environmental impacts of what U.S. militarism does. And in the last 20 years, it's been catastrophic. It's been completely fucking catastrophic. So I have seen like a couple articles, like maybe one from The Intercept. I know World Beyond War with David Swanson. They, they cover this frequently. Um, but yeah, I mean, just small time publications and blogs that I've really seen in the last couple of years that have really taken this on and talked about it the way that it should be. But it has just been very short articles. Uh, where is the data at this point coming from in terms of like the CO2 emissions from U.S. military? How do you get how do you even get that information? So here's the thing is back during the 1997 Kyoto Treaty, the U.S. government lobbied that because of national security reasons, they could not disclose the CO2 emissions from any of the bases. So any of the 800 plus military bases, as well as our own, you know, our own military apparatuses within this country and beyond. And that includes, you know, naval carriers, B-52 bombers, like all of that shit. So the only way that it can be calculated is through oil purchases, which really it's not necessarily a direct correlation. And when you're looking at the global supply chain, you know, of all the proxy armies, all of the weapons productions and shipments, you know, there's so there's so much there that just to look at oil purchases from the U.S. military really does does nothing to explain the full story of how much the U.S. military, as an industry, is directly contributing to climate change. And as we know, it goes so much more beyond just direct carbon emissions. It's the destruction and decimation of environments around the world that the base constructs and bombing ranges and war games do that prevent adaptability, that prevent people from actually being able to adapt their climate and environment to deal with climate change, to mitigate the worst effects of climate change. So there's so much there that we don't know because it's been purposefully hidden from us because of national security reasons. So people have tried to fill in the gap. In fact, at, at COP26 this year when we were in Glasgow, there was a whole panel at this People's Summit that was supposed to be like, this is the People's Forum going on at the same time that the Climate Forum was going on. And there was a group of scientists that did a panel called the Military Emissions Gap Panel. And they tried to calculate based on the available data of oil consumption and all of that, it's so understated and underreported. And, and, you know, a lot of academics actually give conservative estimates because they don't want to be hyperbolic. They don't want their data to be taken out of context and they don't want it to be politicized. So they intentionally give the most conservative estimates possible. And going back to the whole climate change thesis in general, like that's what I realized as I interviewed more and more of these people is like, it's the opposite of how it's kind of hyperbolically made out to be by you know, Fox News and such by being like, oh, these people are alarmists. It's like, no, they, they tend to actually go the other direction because they don't want to be seen as alarmist. Fascinating. So 
what is like the if you could point to like one thing right now out of everything that people know that like the military is involved in what do you think is like one and this would be like the last like generic question i'll ask you because it's just i know this is just a sounds like a very stock question but i, I i'm really curious what's like the one thing that you would point to uh people that's saying like this really needs more coverage and more attention because people just do not realize like how much this is actually damaging the environment that the military is doing. Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of what I've realized is a lot of the shit that's going on around the country and around the world are remnants from the cold war and world war two, like callous construction of like horrifically toxic chemicals that were like degreasing chemicals or whatever, like, like nuclear waste, like all of the shit that was buried and not cleaned up. That's a lot of what we're seeing when we look at things like Superfund sites around the country, these, these highly toxic sites that are designated by the EPA to be, you know, highly polluting and dangerous to human health and the environment. And they're actually put on the national priorities list for like cleanup efforts. But what I realized also is that there's a whole new class of pollution that is super recent. And, you know, it, it's the burn pit stuff going on in Iraq and Afghanistan, but it's also here in the United States, the dumping of quote-unquote forever chemicals. They're called PFAS chemicals, and they are dumped in the water supplies at a lot of these military bases across the country, and they toxify groundwater for tens of millions of people. I mean, the last statistic that I saw said that like half of the country at least has been contaminated by PFAS dumping, um, primarily by military toxins. And it's not just people on the bases or surrounding the bases. It is literally like they permeate the ground soil and groundwater and it, and it has far reaching effects. These chemicals are called forever chemicals for a reason. I mean, it, it's just like depleted uranium. And I mean, this shit does not go away and it's so absurd. Like the uses of them are so absurd. I mean, one of them is like a firefighting foam that they tried to incinerate. And then it just like, yeah, pretty much defies logic that you would try to incinerate a foam that was used to stop fires. But I mean, that shit doesn't go away. So even if you try to burn it, it's just going to go into the atmosphere and cause the same kind of, of damage that you would if you just like buried it in the soil. So the fact that this has been going on for the last couple of years pretty clandestinely is just horrifying. No one's talking about it. Several of the sites that we went to in Alaska have these PFAS chemicals um, that are just just destroy. I mean, they're invisible killers. So like, no one really can knows. And unless you like sue the government, and after a couple of decades, you learn, you know, retroactively, it's like, oh, we found out that all of these cases of cancer and illnesses and birth defects were actually from these PFAS chemicals. Like, we're gonna see that shit in like thirty years. Because the stuff that we're seeing now from like Coldwater Creek and all of these other cases are from like the Cold War that the military's finally acknowledging like 50 years later, like, yeah, we did this and here we'll pay out whatever, whoever's still alive will maybe pay out some of these health claims or lawsuits. But like, this is happening now. One of the sites that we went to in, in Anchorage, there was a school adjacent to the military base and just kids are just unbeknownst to them. They're just like playing in the playground right next to this military base where PFAS chemicals have just completely infected all of these wells and just huge amounts of people that live right there. 
You know, it's crazy. In Alaska, you don't think that drinking water is a problem because it's like a huge glacial, there's like 80,000 glaciers or whatever. And glaciers just provide all, you know, it's like a direct feed into like drinking water and provides all the sustenance for all these living beings. But, um, but yeah, I mean, basically the water has become undrinkable because of what the military has done. I, I didn't even know about this, this law that was passed and I was doing a little reading about it before we started the CERCLA law from 1980 that created this concept of Superfund sites. There's a, obviously a ton of like corporations that have basically made certain aspects of land that they did work on uninhabitable or toxic, but also, I mean, a lot of these are military bases, but also what you're saying is that, no, there's not even any data out there that can accurately really tell us the, the full scope of how bad uh, what the military is doing i mean we don't because they're probably hiding a lot of this stuff i mean they don't count you know places that are probably technically super fun sites that would be classified under there there's probably quite a few of them missing is basically what i'm saying would you say that that's correct from the like the official list absolutely so there's like 900 out of 1300 that are either active military sites or have previously hosted military needs and the other 400 are are like you know, mining or oil corporations, which another point of the documentary is it's not as simplistic as saying like, oh, the Pentagon is the biggest problem in the world. It's like, basically, it's the structure of imperialism. And that goes along with the extraction of these resources, right, at a rate yeah, exactly. that is just absolutely insane. So like mining, uh, oil, drilling, um, all of the shit that is subsidized by the empire, Right. And all of these subsidized industries that are highly polluting industries. And really, when you look at like, what are the wars that we fought over the last 20 years for? You know, I mean, it really, if you go back in time, a lot of it has been to extract and secure capital and resources from like developing countries and to prevent those countries from being like self sufficient. And so it is the structure of imperialism as well as, and that goes along with NATO and the junior collaborators of the empire. Um, so it isn't just like cut and dry, like, oh, it's the United States. It's it's the entire global system that that we're talking about here. And that goes along with these industries. So if you're looking at the Superfund sites, the 1,300 of them, they really could all be classified under this, you know, the system that we're talking about. But yeah, you're absolutely well, can right. I just, yeah, go can ahead. I just mention, because I'm looking at a list of them right now, it's exactly what you're talking about. Silicon Valley alone has like, it seems like they have like almost 40 Superfund sites and they're all military industrial complex companies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Fairchild Semiconductor, Hewlett Packard, Intel, you know, those sound like they're just mainstream computer companies to people. But originally these companies were just government companies like doing like military contracts. Raytheon, National Semiconductor Corp, uh, Spectrophysics, Westinghouse Electric Corp., and so these, all these places obviously were like heavily subsidized by the military. And these are all just in Santa Clara, like yep. in, in the Bay Area, super fun sites. Exactly. And it's a, it's a controversial designation. So a governor is not, is going to do everything that they can to not designate a site, a super fun site, because then they have to put more money into the cleanup efforts. They have to just like have kind of like a black stain on the record of the state and so imagine the the hoops that politicians have gone through to prevent sites from being labeled Superfund sites. 
Um, for example, in Alaska, there's only a couple Superfund sites there, but really the whole state should be a fucking giant Superfund site because even this island off the coast of Alaska called St. Lawrence Island is like, it's more toxic than even some Superfund sites that have been designated. And, and they just skirt around responsibility and accountability. So like another problem with the Superfund sites is like, they'll just say it's cleanup or it's remediated. And like, really, if you dig through the data, it, it isn't nearly as cleaned up as it needs to be in order for it to be like habitable. Like it's just a dead zone. Um, and, and it's so tragic because on paper it's like, oh, they're doing this and that, or, oh, they have like these levels of remediation that they're doing to clean up. And then when you actually talk to people who like live there, they're like, no, we're all fucking dying. Like, like this woman from the Yupik people and, and Alaska is quite a tragic example of this because so many people are indigenous. It's like 20% of Alaskans are native indigenous people. And all of them are like the ones who are most impacted by this pollution. And this woman who was a Yupik person who was like, you know, they're heralded as like the most badass fucking indigenous people in the world. Cause they like live in the middle of the goddamn Arctic and live off like whale blubber and shit. And and like the shit that she was saying was just absolutely insane. She was like, we used to live till we're like 100 years old. All of my grandparents, my great grandparents, they all lived till at least 100 because they lived on just like fatty acids from like salmon that they would just take right out of the fucking ocean. So they were just used as like a spy center for like 10 years. And then all of this shit was just dumped there. And she said like everyone has died and they all die at like 40, 50 years old now. Like that's how rapid of a decline in health from just like 20, 30 years of, of this legacy of pollution there. But, but it's just absolutely insane. Um, you know, and, and basically it's like the native genocide is still going on. This is something that we think as like this remnant uh, and this scar on our past. But like, what else can you call what's happening with these literal sacrifice zones of poor brown, black and indigenous people who are living on the front lines of all these Superfund sites and all of these polluted just dead zones in the country? Tell me about what your Alaska trip uh, entailed. Like wh what exactly you did there? Because you were you were on some glaciers out there, and when we went to Alaska, like on family trip years and years ago, I couldn't even have conceived of like climbing on a glacier. It would have been too scary. So, how did you get convinced to do that? <laughs> First of all, tell me what what that was about, and like what how that's going to play into your movie. Yeah, so Alaska is called the canary in the coal mine for studying climate change because the Arctic warms three times faster than the rest of the planet. And so a lot of climate scientists have moved to Alaska to study and analyze the effects of climate change that they see happening there first. Where? In Alaska. In Alaska. Yeah. But like where specifically? Oh, I mean, where? everywhere. Because, you know, it's, um, first of all, the indigenous impact, the fact that there's so many glaciers there that are incurring this rapid recession. Um, the fact that like most of Alaska is permafrost too, which is really crazy. And I didn't realize that until I was there, which means that that is also melting. Like it, it is literal. it's a very literal term. It's like permanent frost. So it's, it's, it captures all of the dead decayed carbon that's trapped in this like literal ice blocks that a lot of the shit is built on. Like most of the infrastructure in Alaska is actually built on top of permafrost. And so it's a very unstable terrain but moreover as it melts which it is doing so at a rapid rate we're going to see like exponential um 
doubling and tripling of the effects of climate change that we can't even foresee yet because we don't know when that's going to happen. It's kind of like the things that you hear about, like the methane burp that can happen at any time, like the captured methane at the bottom of the ocean. Any one of these ge geological like um, anomalies can happen at any time and double and triple the effects that we've already seen happening with what we know is like a very steady track of emissions. So that's why Alaska is so interesting of a case study. Um, and I went there with Dar Jamail, who is an incredible reporter. He wrote a book called The End of Ice, which is just a really devastating kind of account of, of the planet that we're leaving behind. As we once knew, you know, like dead zones, coral reefs are all being bleached. Like this shit's not going to be here in like 40, 50 years. And, and it's like, once you realize that, it's like, what the fuck are we doing? You know, like this is all going to be like ancient lore for like our children and grandchildren, like the Great Barrier Reef and all of these things. Like I didn't realize before I read his book that one quarter of all ocean life sustains on coral reefs. So what happens when those are gone? You know, like these things that we actually haven't even entertained because it's so far off in our minds, but it actually is not that far off if we continue on the current course that we are on. Dar Jamail also was a, per a perfect link for this movie because he was one of the first investigative journalists studying DU and the effects of, of U.S. militarism in Fallujah. He went, he was one of the first embedded reporters in the Iraq war. And so his ability to like tie all of this together has been really important for us and was like a, a good example to follow. And he's also like a mountaineer. So he, he literally lives on glaciers for like months out of the time. He was a, a, a volunteer rescuer on several glaciers in his life. And so his stories are, are just insane. But, but personally speaking, I mean, his description of how the glaciers have changed you know, tremendous changes that he's seen over the past 20 years, even from the Matanuska Glacier that we went to with him. He was like, this is already just devastating. There was like a huge lake in front of the glacier. Um, there was all this black soot looking like volcanic rock that was like muddy. And he was like, this is all dead glacier. And we had to walk like almost close to a mile just to get on the actual glacier because of how much of it had died already. Where was in this front of it. Uh, this that was you guys in, were? Um, this was uh, about two, hour, two and a half hours outside of Anchorage. Okay. And then we were on the glacier and, you know, he's just, he's just talking about different aspects of why a glacier is so important, what it does to sustain life and stuff. And what was really fascinating is when we got there, um, he was like, the glacier is now privatized. He was like 20 years ago, like ever, anyone could come and see this, one of the world's natural wonders, you know, like these beautiful ancient looking glaciers that have been here for millennia and he was like now like a private tour company owns the glacier and so we had to pay a ridiculous amount just to get on to film and then once we got there the tour company was just like you guys have a hard out at 5 p.m they're like because the boss's daughter is getting married on the glacier and we were like okay and so we were all like rushing to get this footage and then like all like all these like cowboy fucking like dudes came up, like drove like a giant SUV, like all these trucks on the edge of the glacier and they all like like took it over and did like a wedding on it. I was like, this is fucking it was so emblematic of just like the riches stomping grounds. You know, it's like they don't give a shit about the glacier's uh, longevity. They just care about like the fact that they have it now. 
They're going to do whatever the fuck they want to the glacier because they own it technically. And also capitalizing on the fact that it's like receding. So it's like they want to like fucking capture that market and be like, we're going to charge an arm and a leg because this shit's not going to be here forever. And so we need to just like get as rich as we can off of it now. So was there actually, so like a private entity bought this, like it made it like into a park or what was the, yeah. were they actually? Yeah. Okay. Like you can't get anywhere near the, the, the toe of the glacier unless you go through this maze like road that, that is all blockaded off by this now private, private family. Then they and they take they like allow you access to go to the toe of the glacier. There's a lot more that we did in Alaska that that people can wait to to watch Earth's Greatest Enemy to see. Talking to Pam Miller from Community Action Against Toxics, who has just been doing incredible work uncovering the PFAS chemicals and the the information about the Superfund sites and the lack of accountability from the government, and just how disturbing it is that over the last couple of decades, Alaska has become you know, extremely Trumpian. Um, it's kind of done like the reverse. It's been like the reverse trend of like actually giving a shit about this and wanting to hold the military accountable for all of their crimes. And instead, there's just a reverence for the military. As we were staying in the hotel there, it was just like constantly just seeing military people. There's a huge amount of military bases. And so you see this kind of mentality popping up everywhere that we've done investigating for the documentary so far that people feel indebted and grateful to the military. And there's like really a, a huge lack of connection to the actual material effects of their life and like the the, the water and food that they eat and drink, like the, the environment that they're living in, the air that they're breathing, the land that they live on and like looking at who is the perp. And that's like this monolithic entity that basically controls every aspect of their environment. But instead, you see this kind of attitude where they they want to be grateful for who has supplied jobs in the town, who they feel like takes care of them. I think that's a really huge problem. I mean, we witnessed it firsthand when we did our Lawrence Livermore Lab special. That was like the one of the only times I like remember doing like a man on the street interviews with you and just like being really surprised by the reactions of people in Livermore who they just seem to have the very positive, you know, they didn't, they didn't understand. And, and I don't even think we knew at the time how much damage the lab had actually caused, you know? And once we found out, I was like, damn, this is really sad in a way that people just don't even know. And they just like have a knee jerk defense of it when you bring it up. One other thing about like the CO2 stuff, cause I feel like I didn't make this point. Um, like people, understandably like point to China, you know, as like China, you know, for, for a lot of reasons, COVID, mm -hmm, climate course. change. It's like China's like the big bad fucking country that, oh, the U.S. just takes us a, a back seat and like China's really the, the culprit of all the shit. And like really since CO2 lingers in the atmosphere for hundreds of years and it is a cumulative thing, meaning even if we stopped emitting today and actually kept all of the oil in the ground and stopped actually extracting all this shit and, and pumping out CO2, the effects would still be felt for the next like 30 years because it's a cumulative thing. Like you can't just stop it now and it just stops. It's like the environment doesn't work that way. So if you're looking at historically, the United States is the largest historical emitter of CO2. 
cumulatively, the emissions since the Industrial Revolution are double of China. So even though China is emitting more right now, a lot of that has to do with extractive industries and productive technologies that we have exported to China. Right? I mean, this is a, a lot of this shit is U.S. based. It's not as, as simple as just being like China's doing this. It's all tied together in the global economy, and a lot of it is still our fucking fault. You know, so we are we are also the top consumer of fossil fuels and natural gas. And the U.S. government subsidizes these industries. So it's always locking in like new dirty industries to expand. So the levels of consumption can just continue unabated. So I just wanted to say that because I, I think it's a really important point before we move on. Let's talk about this uh, COP26 conference that you went to in Glasgow. What was this conference and why did you go as part of your documentary? So for 26 years now, since Kyoto in 1997, there have been annual climate treaty negotiations held by like the G20 governing bodies. Um, historically, this has, of course, excluded China and Russia, two countries that we absolutely need to be collaborating on and working in concert with to actually combat this global problem that we all face and are all a part of. So that aside... Um, there hasn't been a conference this big since the Paris Accords in 2015. So I felt like for the purpose of the documentary, it would be insane not to be there. Um, it seemed insane to go to Scotland and bring our 18-month-old toddler. Um, but we just bit the bullet and we were like, look, we have to be there. Even though we couldn't even perceive that we would get accreditation in terms of press credentials because I'm not working for an established news outlet. Um, there were severe restrictions on press access to make sure that, like, everyone basically was an access journalist, right? And they really hold the threat of rescinding those press credentials for not just future COP conferences, but for all UN events. So, like, it was already, like, super strict. Um, I'm not going to explain how we ended up getting credentials, but, like, last minute, like, literally days before we went, we found out that we got accredited and we were like, holy shit, this shit is on, dude. Because at first it was like we were just going to go to the People's Summit, which was the the summit that was being held simultaneously with the COP. And, and of course, these huge demonstrations, civil disobedience, all of these actions and protests that were happening simultaneously while COP was going on that we just wanted to be a part of and film for the documentary. So then it kind of pivoted over to like, we have to do as much as we can inside COP because we're never going to get a chance like this again. It was kind of a fluke that I, that I even got approved. And like, after what I did there, like, I'm sure that will never happen again. They'll be sure to never <laughs> let me in another event like this again. But, you know, being in D.C. for as long as I was, Robbie, you know how D.C. is. You were there a couple times. Like, it, it's super access journalism. Um, I never got approved to go anywhere near the White House in the press corps that was, like, anywhere near actual politicians. And, in fact, the only time I ever asked a politician a question that was unapproved in the halls of Congress, I got almost arrested and, and charged with stalking and harassment of Senator Rand Paul for asking him basically nothing. So I, I know how this shit works. I know that they need everything pre-scripted and pre-approved. And if you don't do that, you won't be invited back. 
you know, this whole like identity politics gone wild shit that they embrace, this tokenism and wokeism like that the Biden administration embodies, like a lot of people were invited in to the conference that were given special passes. But if you were doing a, a sanctioned action that was sanctioned by the cop governing body, like they had to pre-approve your messaging. They had to, you couldn't name and shame anyone. So you couldn't name any politician. You couldn't shame any country. Like it looked like a trade show. Like banks had booths. Um, <laughs> of course. Luxury automobile companies had booths. Saudi Arabia, Qatar, United Arab Emirates, they all had big booths talking about how they were like advancing green technology. And like the sloganeering was just indistinguishable from like some of these approved protest zone banners and stuff because it was just all so empty and hollow. It's really a shame because we need actual militant action right now. Like we are past the point of no fucking return, you know? And that was my motto going in. I was like, look, if we have access now, like we're not going to get it again. And so we got to fucking do all we can to make as many waves as possible because nothing's guaranteed and nothing should be guaranteed. Like, I don't want to go into this with the perspective that I'm going to try to continue my access because I got accredited for this one conference. And I'm sure if I played ball, I would have been because you're already in the system. And so the moment that we get there, um, one of our comrades who was there on like a anti-militarism delegation they had a couple badges approved for a couple days and they had a banner up this is like the best thing that i saw happen within the blue zone which was like within like the the sanctioned cop zone where all the fucking people were but they had a banner up that said u.s militarism is the number one polluter number one colonizer and something else and the number one emitter and they had to fold down where it said u.s the secretariat who's like working for the cop like boss or whatever comes over, like rips the banner away from them because I guess they, he didn't like it or something or like it wasn't obvious enough that it that it wasn't like general enough. And so he like takes the banner and like whisks away, whisks it away. And I like go up and try to confront him about it. And he immediately almost kicked us out right then within like five minutes of being there. He was like, you can't do this. He was like taking pictures of my my badges. And he was like, he was like, I don't approve this footage. Like, you can't just come up and, like, confront me like this. And I was just like, what is going on? This is insane. So, like, right out of the gate, I was like, this is going to be bad. Like, we have to do as much as we can today before we're potentially not <laughs> let back in tomorrow. <laughs> Hilarious. And then we go in the main area where all the press is staged, like all the corporate media has their own like, you know, booths and shit. And then like all it's like basically you're just in a giant stadium that's sponsored by giant corporations. There's like like World Bank and fucking Bloomberg and like, you know, all of that is just like spinning around. You have these cartoons playing on these TVs about net zero. Like the main talking point that came out of it is like net zero, which means they don't want to stop extracting. They don't want to stop oil production or gas or natural gas production. What they want to do is just offset it by planting forests. Like literally that's how cartoonish the shit was. Meanwhile, all of this like these art displays with like paper mache globes and like children like and all these like green like jungly looking like vibe stuff for backdrops. But then meanwhile, you're like, what are we actually talking about here? Like what is going on? You know, and like walking through the main area where all the countries had booths like represented. And of course, you didn't see countries like Venezuela or Cuba, who actually has a negative emissions. Nothing about them because it's all just U.S. allies and like sanctioned countries that are just like acceptable 
you know, under the imperialist system. You witness like a convention floor of very expensive, like greenwashing branding, like uh, posturing exactly. by all these entities. Exactly. I mean, it's the stuff that we've been seen you know like even bp uh, mm -hmm. i think they're one of the first corporations i can remember their commercials being like all about the environment like maybe like even as long as 15 years ago that would be really surreal to see all that you know i hate using the word virtue signaling i don't know what other word to use it's so weird to me that people they take the black square stuff at face value when a big corporation does it it's like don't you see how you know what greenwashing is what pinkwashing is even like the United States, like even acting like the CIA is now so inclusive or here's the first four gay like yeah. helicopter pilots or like helicopter team or whatever. Like that kind of shit is it's just meant to deceive. It's it's duplicitous. Cynical <laughs> manipulation. It's this it's it's it would be the same as literally believing Israel at face value. It it's so insanely cynical and crazy to actually believe any of that at face value. And that's exactly what we saw. Every single panel, every single politician they all started their speeches by talking about how they want to center indigenous voices and black and brown people and how important that was. And it's like, yeah, that is important to have representation, no doubt. But what the fuck does it have to do with actually getting to the root of, of oppression of said people, of these subjugated races that you're talking about? And like the core of the problem here, which is capitalism and consumerism. You know, and of course, no one talked about the elephant in the room, which was the fact that militarism from not only the U.S., but because the U.S. set the standard of no country having to supply their militarism emissions, that was just not included at all in the conference. So when you have Biden pontificating about how we're going to get to, quote unquote, net zero, which already means nothing by 2030 or 2050, you're like, first of all, that's fucking 30 years away. What are we even talking about here? But if you're talking about cutting emissions by 50% by 2030, first of all, you're not including the military. So what are we even talking about here? How can we even count what the emissions are if you're excluding the largest industrial polluter on the planet? On the planet. You know, it's just so cartoonish. And then you have panels of people like the Nancy Pelosi panel where it's so woke identity politics centered that she only picked on me, Robbie, out of a sea of like a hundred people because I was a woman. And she even was really? like, I want a woman. She was like, I no want a woman. Shit. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So the first person that she picked on was like a New York Times journalist, this guy who asked her like, oh, are you guys going to pass Build Back Better? And it's like, oh, what a great question to ask Nancy Pelosi out of this giant press conference where there's like hundreds of people here and just to, to pretend like they believe in democracy and free speech and stuff, of course, they have like two questions only. And then they like shut down the room, you know, like they it, it's like very just very much of a facade. And like none of these people are accessible. They're whisked in and out of like secret corridors and, and back exits. So you can't actually like confront these people on the floor of any of these like convention spaces. And so we found out the day of that Nancy Pelosi was having this secret presser secret because it wasn't announced it wasn't on the scheduling until like a couple hours before. And I was like, holy fuck. Like, I didn't even know Nancy Pelosi was here. Um, and because it's all like under the, it's all like under like pseudo names of like greening the environment or like shit like that. Like, so like social justice and like climate anxiety, like shit like that. And you're like, what are these? Like, what are these panels? You know, like <laughs> it was so just abstract and weird. And so like, we didn't actually know any 
like what was worth going to because there were so many hundreds of events and panels and all this stuff. So we just found out that Nancy Pelosi was going to do this presser and we were like, holy shit, dude. And so we went there and like only because I was a woman did she pick on me. And she even picked on some other guy who was raising his hand. She was like, you know what? No, I want a woman. That's amazing. I want a woman. Dude. And then she saw me and I still don't know if it's because she recognized me or not or if she heard me speaking because I said Abby Martin from the Empire Files and she was like, or maybe I don't. Weird. I want a woman or maybe not. That's what she said when I started talking before I even said anything. Yeah. So, so yeah, maybe she already, uh, maybe she already knew who you were somehow. I mean, the day before we had confronted, I confronted a bunch of Democratic governors who are supposed to be like on the front lines of climate change, like Jay Inslee, for example, who ran as the climate change candidate in 2020. And like, I asked all of them about why is the military excluded? And all of them just bent over backwards to praise the military and talk about how the military is actually doing like the most technological advancements to prepare us for climate change and all this shit. It's like, you guys are pathetic, dude. You're supposed to be the most progressive governors in the country. Like, this is insane. And then, uh, so maybe I was already on the radar, like because those people and their handlers got really mad at me because I went out of my way to try to like, you know, talk to them on camera after the press conference was over. And that was a whole other story. But like they took photos of my badges and they were running after us trying to find out who we were. And so we were shocked that we got in the next day. Wait, do you have video of uh, Jay Inslee? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. I can't wait to see all that. Yeah, shit. Jay Inslee, we actually released it because that was the that was public. Oh, I but didn't the see other that. people, but the other people we didn't release yet because it's all just our own footage. Because it wasn't okay. on it wasn't on the record. It wasn't the public press conference. So yeah, we have Jay Inslee responding to me. And so the next day we're sitting in we're sitting in the second row of the Pelosi presser, and there were so many people there that I was like, there's no way I'm gonna ask this question. I'm just not gonna be able to. And it was so surreal because like the first first entire row was all Congress people who came as this like climate delegation. There were people on stage with her just going back and forth, bending over backwards to praise her. Thank you, Nancy Pelosi, for everything you've done. We wouldn't be here unless it was for Nancy Pelosi. Some woman being like, America's back. Like Nancy came to the COP20 or COP25, even though Trump wasn't part of the Paris Accords because she wanted to just show that America needs to lead the way. And it's like, hold on. If this institution of like the presidency and our entire form of government is this fragile, that the next Republican president, who will be a Republican because of Biden's abysmal failures and fulfilling any of his promises, he's just going to rescind whatever you guys agree on, which is already non-binding. Whatever you guys decide at COP26 there are are no actual binding regulations for any of the countries involved. It's just a bunch of fucking air, hot air and blah, 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 as Greta Thunberg accurately said. And so on top of that, whoever's going to be the next Trump is just going to remove the U.S. entirely and like totally retract all of the efforts that were done to try to basically tiptoe our way back into these treaties or advocacy to try to like limit emissions like trump is just gonna fucking do a free-for-all for polluters again um and like limit the epa's authority to even regulate any of this stuff right now the supreme court's actually hearing a case to actually say does the epa have authority to limit polluters emissions it's like wow like this is where we're at like corporations have just com- completely run roughshod 
They have complete free reign to do whatever the fuck they want, that even the EPA, the Supreme Court might actually say that the EPA doesn't have any authority to do anything, <laughs> like against polluters. So that's where we're at. So that just just think of that context in this press conference where everyone's just fawning over Nancy Pelosi and her heroism for all the stuff that she's done for climate change. And just like by virtue of her existing, by virtue of the fact that Biden is president, that's all that was really needed, Robbie, to send a message to the world that America is back. We are back. We are leading the way. And so that's why it was so shocking um, for the room just kind of went silent and everyone was like, holy shit. Like when I asked my question. Wait a minute. Wait, I want a woman. I want a woman. A woman. A woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gender equality here. Uh, Maybe I don't. Let's see. Abby Martin with the Empire Files. Speaker Pelosi, you just presided over a, a large increase in the Pentagon budget. This Pentagon budget is already massive. The Pentagon is a larger polluter than 140 countries combined, how can we seriously talk about net zero if there is this bipartisan consensus to constantly expand this large contributor to climate change, which is exempt from these conferences? Military is exempt from climate talks. Well, I I just want to use an example, if I can. Um, You know the sea level rise is an important part of uh, you know, what's happening to the climate. And I am not a defense person, but I've had so many talks with the Defense Department, with the Navy in particular, about how they have to respond to what's going on. So I really do think that there is no reason why what we're putting together, you know, uh, with Build Back Better and other things, can't respond to the Defense Department and, and, and have the same impact in terms of reducing emissions. And I do think that the Defense Department is very much aware of the fact that they have to play a major role, both from a strategic as well as, you know, for the good of the world. So I don't see what we're doing in any way or, you know, increasing the defense budget as being something that's inconsistent with climate action. I really don't. And may I just add that um, the National Security Advisors all tell us that the climate crisis is a national security matter. Uh, it is, of course, a health matter for our children, the water they drink, the air they breathe, etc. It is a jobs issue between clean, good, clean technologies uh, being the future of our workforce and the training for all of that. It is a national security issue because of the, uh, uh, all of the con- conditions that climate crisis produces, I won't go into all of them, but they do are cause for migration, conflict over habitat and resources, and again, uh, a security challenge globally. And then the fourth, of course, the moral issue that we need to pass on this planet to future generations in a responsible way. Now, recognizing what you said, we recognize that as well. And a big user of of, uh, fuel, Uh, There have been many initiatives over time more successful with more technology to convert from fossil fuel uh, to other other sources of uh, of fuel to run the military because it would make the biggest difference. Transportation, defense, these are two of the biggest, uh, can make the biggest difference in all of that. And that is something we're very, very focused on, as I say, the Defense Department sees this systemically, that we have to stop it as a national security issue, and one way to do that is to stop our dependence 
on fossil fuels, which exacerbate the climate crisis. With that, I thank you all for being here. Unfortunately, they're telling us they have to clean the room. I didn't know about that. So, yeah, what is really interesting about that is, is first of all, she fields the answer to a guy named Frank Pallone, this New Jersey uh, politician who's basically saying, well, the sea levels are going to rise, as you know. So he's like, so naturally we need a bigger navy. Like, okay, wow. Like we need big ships and a big navy because the sea level is going to rise. So like that's already bizarre enough. But then I guess Nancy Pelosi wasn't satisfied enough with his answer and her his answering for her, even though I specifically addressed the question to her, that she actually dovetails off of it and and answers a kind of ominously worded response where she says the national security state and like the the military establishment needs to deal with the effects of climate change. Like in so many words, basically, we're going to be dealing with a lot more migrants coming in and a lot more like war and instability that will just naturally be solved by the institution that is causing all this shit is a very disturbing answer. If you really dig into the words that she's saying or not saying, you know, and and then she basically acknowledges the fact that the U.S. is such a huge polluter. And she's just like, yeah, she's like, to to take your point, like, we are going to have to, like, green the military. Basically, the Elizabeth Warren mantra, like, we're just going to have to green the military, throw solar-powered tanks out there, and, and, like, put biofuel in our fucking jets. So it was super surreal. Mm-hmm. And then after it was over, she was like, oh, I'm being told we have to clean the room. And it was like she didn't have an earpiece in. No one was signaling to her. She clearly just was mad at the question and then just wrapped up the entire press conference. She was like, all right, we have to clean the room now. It's like, what do you mean? The room is spotless. You, you guys sanitize the shit out of this for COVID. Like, like there's like a whole staff like working to scrub every surface here before we even got in here. Like, what do you mean you have to clean the room? So that was really hilarious. She's like pulling on her scarf all nervously as I'm like asking it. It's like, so funny because you could tell she's just like never been confronted with this before and like all of them just were dumbfounded at like why would i even be bringing up the military it was just super shocking aoc was actually sitting in the audience after nancy pelosi gets whisked away into this corridor i yelled at aoc who was surrounded by like college kids trying to take selfies with her and ask her questions and i like yelled at her i was like do you think the military should be included in and she was like what and she like walked toward us and actually answered the question and made sure to differentiate herself from Democratic leadership, which I thought was very good. And it was necessary at that point in time because she was being tokenized by the Pelosi contingent being like AOC and Pelosi come to COP26 together. And so the fact that, look, to her fault, there's a lot of things that I have to criticize AOC for. But at that moment, I thought it was important for her to distinguish herself and say, no, this is very important if we're not counting emissions from the military, what are we even talking about? It absolutely has to be included and addressed. And a couple of days later, she gave a live stream recap of the entire conference, and she actually brought up the question in an abstract way. She didn't give me credit or talk about Empire Files oh, or anything. Really? Yeah, but she just said this question that was asked caused a lot of heat, and actually a lot of people didn't know. She claims that Democratic politicians, once they walked off it was it continued the conversation for like quite a few hours of like heated debate of why isn't the military included how do they not know that it is very curious if people were really ignorant of the fact that the u.s military is not included in the conversation i mean i think it's something that's probably 
it has been largely omitted from the dialogue on purpose. I mean, the U.S. wants to be able to get away with it, what it wants to be able to get away with, and it also wants to be able to wield whatever control it can using, like, this idea of greening things and saving the environment at the same time. I mean, it's this is what an imperial power will eventually do in the modern era that we're living in, and we're seeing it play out with the way the U.S. is doing it. Even with a Democratic Party, you know, in control of the government, they know on some level that if it's there's too much heat or attention about the military being a contributor to this, it'll basically take away some of their power just overall. Yeah, it's it it's probably like jarring for certain people to even be introduced to this topic, because I think people maybe understand on a basic level how much pollution the U.S. military has done over time, but they don't think of it as like a something that's happening now or that's actually like causing serious damage now, even just the climate change angle. I think that that specifically is something that people just don't even think about at all or don't even know about really. I don't think any greenwashing in the world is going to change if that becomes more of a conversation and hopefully, you know, when your movie comes out, it does. They're not going to be able to like greenwash that away. It's just because it's I, I don't think people really realize once you unpick that scab and really go through the history of all the pollution they've done and, you know, people that have died from cancer, even just from like burn pits, it's it's pretty devastating. It's a pretty horrific record. I mean, what else was your experience like there confronting people? Did you have anybody contact you after the Nancy Pelosi confrontation, you know, who had seen it happening live or anything like that? Like, did anyone come up to you afterwards? Um, No, not afterwards. But yeah, I did get a lot of good feedback. A lot of people were like, this is great that this intervention was made and that the conversation was forced to be had because it just purposefully never talked about no one wants to unpack how the u.s military is a large contributor to this and also just completely omitted from the discussion and um, not held accountable for anything and when are we going to say no more when are we going to actually stop this madness it's it's utter lunacy that this continues to go on and that their answer is to essentially just be thankful for the military. No one gave me a direct answer. Everyone just said how important the military will be because there's this notion that's baked in that climate change instability will just cause war. And it's like if you look at actual like climate change uh, areas where people have experienced, you know, mass flooding or hurricanes like Hurricane Sandy or things like that, there's actually more community that emerges and mutual aid efforts that happen. It's It doesn't just immediately turn to where people turn arms on each other like the walking dead and like start cannibalizing their community. Like it's a weird fantasy that's just put out there by the military to basically say, this is happening. This is going to happen. And here's how we can further militarize the solution, Mil further militarizing our borders um, further preparing for war that will inevitably come. And so it's important to not feed into the military mantra where you're like, oh, like, you know, this is just like a given that the effects of climate change will just cause war and chaos. It's like that is not a given and we should not feed into the line that will just inevitably embolden the military apparatus that we are trying to confront here. And that's the part of the scary part about going back to some of those leaked videos uh, from years ago where that was from within the Pentagon's 
some kind of like internal think tank that they had where they would play like video presentations for people and workshop stuff where it was about this idea of like global unrest mm -hmm. and showing these like super riots and, you know, the chaos that would ensue globally with uh, climate change, essentially. Like they even, I think they even bring up climate change as being one of those factors, you know, not just like a lack of resources and economic unrest, but climate change. So, I mean, yeah, that's going to be, they're always going to be thinking like in catastrophic, insane ways. And yeah, obviously that's probably shaping this sort of establishment duplicitous, you know, we're here to help, you know, save the world from climate change posturing among exactly. all these, um, you know, nation states and, and establishment people. Just the fact that Al Gore made inconvenient truth, mm -hmm. like that's a problem in and of itself. Cause the right. whole thing has now been associated with some kind of like, agenda by a like a political you know ruling class like for some reason the like it seems like the ruling class wanted to like push this as one of their things really early on but like that doesn't mean that it's not actually a problem at the same time that needs to be like unpacked you know yeah. i think it wasn't it wasn't until nafiz ahmed made a lot of these points i don't know maybe it was like in the early 2000s or mid 2000s about sort of this carbon credit system and how the ruling class was using climate change. And then also like nation states were using it as like a geopolitical tool, leveraging tool of their own, while simultaneously the climate is an issue and they're not solving it. You know, you're not just uh, reacting to how woke or, or greenwashy this conference team. I'm assuming you're going to touch on some of this in your movie, right? Like you're going to go oh, into some of that. Absolutely. I mean, I... I have to address the denialism because it is such a strong current that persists and it is a lot of well-intentioned people who just naturally think that anything that the government promotes, even if it's cynically being promoted in a very superficial fashion that doesn't get to the core issue, that it's just that that you shouldn't trust it or believe it even. Um, and we are going to address the scam that the government is is putting forth as the solution, which is, you know, basically money-making measures that don't address the roots of capitalism or consumerism. And, um, you know, even like, it's just so surreal because it's like even the UN chief that opened COP26 and like the opening plenary was like, we're digging our own grave. And it's like, yeah, no shit. So what are we talking about here? You know, like basically at the end of the day, when you look at what came out of COP, the conference of parties, this was like a two and a half week meeting that probably cost like half a billion dollars. Like when you really look at how much money was thrown at this conference, all the people who went there, what they came out of it with the draft declaration was basically proposing to protect the fossil fuel industry. Like it was essentially saying their whole, their whole thing is about trying to prevent the 1.5 Celsius above pre-industrial baseline temperatures. So nothing above that is what they're trying to accomplish. And as I said before, there's so many problems with that, meaning like if anything else happens other than these very neat and tidy studies, then like that's all thrown out the window. But this whole philosophy that they're trying to like do net zero by 2030, there's no actual relevant discussion or emergence of an emergency program of like full-scale economic transition like how can we stop today we need to stop and we all have the transition methods ready to go which is renewable energy yeah it might not be as uh 
like as um, efficient right now, but it needs to happen to save the planet. Like there's none of that mentality being taken into account because they need to continue burning energy at the same rate to, to keep people consuming at the same rate that they are. That's not even factoring into the equation that maybe we should stop for the sake of future fucking generations. For the survival of our civilization, we need to stop this level of consumption so we can transition over to renewable sources so we can stop this madness extractive fucking mentality stop war as the as the first fucking solution like all of this needs to stop because the planet is dying um but it is very frustrating to just see what actually emerged out of this huge conference it was a lot of fucking blah 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 a lot of people patting each other on the back saying corporations and ngos are going to save us from the worst effects of climate change and that's who we need to look at that's who we need to look to to solve this crisis and you saw um, Public Citizen did a, did a study where they actually went through every single person who was approved to get in, all the delegates, all the, the people who went to COP, and 500 just open and shut fossil fuel lobbyists were there representing the largest delegation of any country at the conference, like advocating for their industries, for the survival of their industries. And, and that is a huge fucking problem saying the U.S. is leading the way when two years ago we had a president who denied climate change was a thing and, and declaring open season for polluting industries, wanting to, to promote coal. At least Boris Johnson was there talking about how climate change is real. Like, that's how fucking off the goddamn rails America is. And how dare you say we're leading the way? It's a disgrace and it's insulting to our intelligence. So... My biggest takeaway is we need we need a wake up call. I, I sadly it's going to be hard to do because of how big the issue is. It's it's very big, and the disbelief in climate change is basically akin to religion. But my hope is that uncovering the role of the U.S. military will push the conversation further along and force these giant environmental organizations to confront this which haven't been wanting to confront it. I don't know if be, because of their donors, because of subsidies from the government, because of grants. It's a controversial subject, but it needs to be addressed because we're running out of time and the empire is going to kill us all. It's a death cult and it needs to stop now. And so, you know, uncovering the truth and dragging this monster out of the shadows and into the light is something that I'm very passionate about doing and I just hope that other people uh, can join that struggle and spread that consciousness and, and fold in the need to demilitarize their communities into the struggle for the planet and, and the need to push environmental consciousness. Because it is really, you can't look at one without understanding the other. And so that, that's the intent with the movie. We have several podcasts that are patron-exclusive podcasts that we go far deeper into these subjects on uh, patreon.com slash empire files. We're doing a lot of updates on our Patreon there. And we also have an ongoing fundraiser where we've already raised over $60,000. We've almost spent it all, believe it or not, because this is a very high production film because we want it to be like really taken seriously and hopefully picked up by a streaming network. That's why we need to raise a, a lot more money because we don't just want to go 
to the Superfund sites here. We don't just want to uncover news stories that are affecting people here in this country. We also want to go to the territorial empire, which is either Guam or Puerto Rico, to talk about how those countries have been decimated by U.S. militarism and potentially go to like Okinawa or the Jeju Islands would be a dream um, to cover the the anti-base struggles there and and really show how people can empower themselves by fighting the U.S. military and fighting this structure of imperialism. And we don't want to just leave people hopeless. I mean, this is something that we can do and that we need to do. I can't fucking wait to see what you guys come up with. Where can people actually like donate to the film? Is this through Patreon? No. So you can be a Patreon subscriber and you know, donate because right now we're not going to do any video content. We're just going to be working on the film for the next couple months, but we're still going to put out some patron-exclusive podcasts, including one with you very soon, Robbie, about your anthrax research. Um, but you can become a patron if you want to be a sustaining donor or go to earthsgreatestenemy.com if you want to be a one-time donor. Um, and you can check it out there. You can donate on Stripe or send us a check and all the information's at earthsgreatestenemy.com. Fucking amazing. And yeah, and let's hope we can we can get more attention to this. I mean, I'm, you know, just from a, a, a strategic, you know, battling the U.S. empire point of view, anything else to add on to the uh, pile of things that we can <laughs> use to to have put weight or heat against them and all and how fucking horrible they are, I am fully encouraging of. And this is sort of like opening up, I think we'll hopefully open up like a new avenue to do that and it'll just sort of be like combining all the streams together you know and mm -hmm. like more intensity more heat on them and i think you know and i don't know if this might be my me projecting because i don't know exactly how your film's going to be laid out but i think one of the things that's gotten lost throughout history about the u.s military polluting and damaging the environment is we only get sort of these spattered you know local stories about the damage they've caused but there's not there, you know, there isn't an overall picture of how big it's been over time. There isn't an overall portrait of the devastating impact of it all combined and how they keep doing it too. It's like, that's the, th the thread I think that people need to see connected. It's not just, oh, we were irresponsible in the past and exactly. that's when we did all this horrific environmental damage. We've just been more clever about it and we've done a better job of hiding it really actually because back in the past it wasn't like as shameful to just throw toxic chemicals everywhere and hope everything's going to be fine. Yep. People did that all the time. Now that's not okay. So they are still doing it. Um, and, you know, I know that your movie is probably going to do a good job of, of at least showing us a different point of view of all that. Exactly. I mean, more soldiers have died from burn pit exposure than in Iraq and Afghanistan wars. <laughs> like wrap and your mind around horrific. that, dude. Believable though. Yeah. believable and who knows what other things you know even just the way they treat soldiers that's a whole other subject but that's something i'm going into on this next podcast um i'm putting out about how you know at various times they would just give soldiers a shitload of vaccines uh that were totally not necessary specifically against anthrax and smallpox like when they were like just stationed in the middle east and it's like there there were actually people who died from that like there's on record, not only are you treating these soldiers so horribly already, now you're basically like, hey, we're, this is for your protection. 
but then actually, whoops, we were actually gave some of you like permanent damage and whoops, some of you died too. Sorry. Like that's the kind of shit they do. Exactly. Fuck the U.S. military. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there just needs to be a, a, a tremendous shift, you know, and I'm really happy that people are passionate about climate change, justice and environmental activism. But like we need to now lump in the biggest danger on the planet. And that needs to be at the forefront of the mentality to fight this system. You know, capitalism is definitely on the minds of people that this is an unsustainable economic model if we want to sustain the planet Uh for hundreds of more years. But it's even more urgent when you look at this behemoth that just has complete callous disregard for human life and the environment. And that is that is shockingly underreported and an underrated aspect of this. And so that's what we were hoping to change. We're hoping to just use this movie as a tool of intervention and especially just, uh, you know, liberals who who really do care about the environment and who are passionate about this and who maybe don't understand how devastating the impact of the U.S. military is. So we need to really change the consciousness here and stop glorifying this death cult um, and especially, you know, just start talking about the real true history and legacy and and one that continues very disturbingly to this day and and has decades of plans of how to how to deal with it in the future you know the military is not denying climate change the military is is very much preparing for what's to come and they are inserting themselves at the center of the solution um so thank you so much robbie for talking to me about this and thank you so much to everyone who's listening for uh you know for your interest in it and i really hope that you can contribute if you know anyone who cares about the issue or if you yourself want to help out and you aren't financially able to just write me an email at the empirefiles at gmail.com and just let me know if you have any ideas for stories you know i mentioned this on the joe rogan show and i got just incredible feedback of people like inside the military telling me crazy shit that we're going to cover in the film too like it's insane the layers here that people are and they're corroborating my thesis that are active military people so it's going to be a very interesting um it's going to be a very interesting film and there's a lot of things that we can do with it but i but yeah i think the hardest part robbie is just summing it up because it is so big and you know you can make a documentary of every, any one of the things that we talked about and so i think the hardest part is going to be trying to f- zero in and like make it a cohesive thing while still covering covering it in a way that really sums up how how terrifying it all is if you're almost looking at it from like a narrative point of view like a just like how story structures would be put together you're taking on like the US military as like the antagonist it's not even like you're just taking on the u.s military in one specific point of time you're taking them on as like this giant apparatus it's not like you know you if you're making like an anti-war documentary you'd almost cover a specific war or something right right so this it is you're you're setting yourself up for challenge (laughs) but i'm excited i think that's going to actually make it like really interesting yes it's something that it's not easy to write this in like a a pitch in a narrative sense the idea is uh so like i'm really excited to see like how it's going to flow and i know you're going to do an amazing job you didn't tell me a lot of this you know stuff you had done for gaza fights for freedom so when i eventually saw it i was just like it it, it was not what uh, exactly what i was expecting it was like better than what i was expecting it exceeded my expectations thank you so i cannot fucking wait and i know mike's like video skills have 
gotten drastically improved and you guys have like serious professionals. I mean, even just the audio on your last documentary was absolutely top notch. So you've moved into a whole other league of, of filmmaking and, and this will be like basically your second film. It'll be your, your sophomore work. So I'm excited what other movies you're probably even thinking of now. We probably, there's probably some ideas floating around in your head. So we'll, I'll have to talk about those two off air. Yeah. yeah, I'm just super excited, like where you are right now, in your life and career, and and where you're going with your material. It's fucking awesome. But yeah, it's really great to see where you're going as well, Robbie. And it's refreshing to kind of take a step back from trying to react to news that happens and and really just dig into this story. Go to Patreon.com/slash Media Roots Radio if you'd like to become a subscriber to get access to our bonus podcasts. Thanks for listening, everybody. And yeah, thank you for all your support. Take care.